The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Audrey. Well, um, again, it's good to see you, and uh, thank you so much for reading that, Audrey. I, years ago, I, um, I've mentioned this in the past. I was a campus minister uh, across the street at Vanderbilt. We have a ministry called RUF. It's a campus ministry called Reform University Fellowship that is um, at a number of campuses around the country. Uh, there's some, uh, uh, several here, uh, even within Middle Tennessee, there are at least six, and we're uh, hoping to add more. Um, there's one at um, Vandy, Belmont, uh, and then a number of other schools around, MTSU, Tennessee Tech, uh, and, and so forth. 
some of you are a part of that ministry. One of the things that uh, we love about it, why it's called RUF, Reformed is part of the, the um, uh, vision of who we are as in our theology, you know, Reformed theology and what that comes from with um, historical Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, those kind of things. Uh, F is fellowship, but in between is U, university. And that means we, uh, and we, what we say that is we come through the front doors when we do that. One of the things I used to do every year over at, uh, when I was a campus minister was a parent's brunch. And it was one of my favorite things because we'd have hundreds of parents come in on family weekend and we'd put on this massive brunch on campus and have the university, you know, we'd pay the university to, um, to serve and, and be a part of it. And it was the great moment for me to meet all the parents of these students that would come in, whether they came once or twice, you know, maybe they came and they wanted to bring their parents just to say, hey, I really am a part of something churchy. Uh, so their parents <laughs> thought they did. But what, what was really big about it was for me and um, I had a student, me and a parent speak, and to let these parents know, A, your kid is not in a cult, <laughs> but B, Especially being at a university like Vanderbilt, which highly prizes academia, intellectual, we're, we're giving, supporting a lot to this place. Is my child a part of something that's kind of off? Is it a distraction? Is this kind of not just, and, and yeah, I joke about the cult, but you'd be surprised. Some parents were like, oh, and when they met me afterwards, they're like, oh, we're glad to know you're, you're really like a normal person. <laughs> And when I would speak in my speech, I often talked about how <clears throat> our ministry and what it means to be a Christian, not just RUF, but I'd say what it means to be a Christian, what you're reading even in Acts, is that we're supposed to interact with our whole self, including and even especially our minds. That Christianity for years and there's a lot of history and connecting points of why this is. There have been prevailing ideas and thoughts that Christianity and being a Christian means you're anti-intellectual. That it is a distraction. Now, that could come from a number of things. Uh, over the years, it could be one of those things where people have divided faith and science or faith and reason. It's part of it. Some people have divided feelings from thinking. And so they've put... Christianity and religious thought over more in the feeling category, less in the thinking category. That has happened a lot over the years. Christians have done that themselves. We've put ourselves in that category. Uh, not that my feelings don't matter, but that's the whole thing, right? And so to, to bring that to not only these parents, but to people to, to understand that you don't come in these walls to check your brain at the door. You actually come to evoke your whole self. In fact, one reason we sing a lot of songs that have words in them that you may go, okay, I need to kind of pay attention to this, is because we're not just supposed to engage your heart, but also your mind, your whole self when you're singing these hymns and songs that have been repurposed or sung again. It's to bring your whole self into worship. One theologian that talks a lot about reason said it this way, William Craig. He said, our churches are filled often with Christians who are idling in intellectual neutral. Often idling in intellectual neutral. You know, when Luke wrote Acts, what he was doing, he was writing what he considered even the beginning of Luke. If you read Luke, 
his gospel. It says he wrote an orderly account that Luke took the time to research, interview, and compile an orderly account to bring the good news of Jesus to specifically a person named Theophilus, but also to talk about in his second volume, which would be Acts, which is where we've been looking. How does this, this, this understanding of Christianity go out from Jerusalem into the rest of the world and interact, as we've seen even last week, with a number of different people from all sorts of walks of life? It could be a Roman jailer. It could be a, 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 a businesswoman at a synagogue. It could be all sorts of people. And as we see here, Paul goes to Athens, and we're going to see how does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Christ interact with one of the most intellectual centers of the universe at that time? And how does it connect? And Paul's going to show us this, and we're going to see it um, in three ways. One is knowledge, one is love, and one is the resurrection. So three things, knowledge, love, and resurrection. You know, <clears throat> one thing about Athens is that they prized knowledge. Uh, it, it talks here about that they did, and it gives us a little insight on that. Luke writes it in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and, all, and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That they want, it was a marketplace of ideas. Uh, you may have heard this. I don't know if you have. If you're new to Nashville, maybe you haven't heard this. Or if you've lived here for a while, maybe you haven't either. Why we have a Parthenon sitting over there <laughs> uh, just a few blocks away. It's an exact replica. It's enormous. If you actually, sometimes you probably drive by it and you're like, what, what is that doing? Well, walk up and you see how huge it is. Well, where Paul was speaking, he'd be standing speaking at this in this moment and that would be sitting right behind him. It was the temple to Athena, right? And they have actually a statue of it in there. Well, Nashville has this replica, as Nashville has been considered, the Athens of the South. Now, I don't know if people still use that about uh, Nashville. It did at times because it had so many academic institutions packed into such a small area. Before we, you know, had all, you know, what it, the, whatever the record is, 110 people a day moving to Nashville, before we had all those statistics, uh, it was considered the Athens of the South because I think we have a, a good high double-digit amount of um, academic institutions within the Nashville proper limits. It's kind of amazing. Athens was very similar. In fact, Socrates often held discourse here in the marketplace. The city of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, literature, art, all these things. Now, think about this for a moment. The Agora, which was considered the market, right, was different than what we think of. We're used to having our phones and looking at papers. The newspapers there, where, where you went to the Agora, you sat in the market and you heard the news. Everything was spoken. All the transactions, be it business, literature, art, culture, happened within that market. You didn't go to four or five different places for that. You went to one. So imagine it, that was somewhat of their internet, but it was everything physically and, and um, informational that they got together in one spot. And here's Paul speaking about the good news of Jesus. And so their reaction is right. Listen to what they say. They say, what does this babbler wish to say? Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers 
also conversed with them and said, we're like, what is this babbler saying? What it, what it meant for them to call him a babbler was that this guy sounds ignorant. He sounds like a plagiarist. He sounds like he's not bringing anything new to the table. They were thumbing their noses at him. It's like, what's this guy bringing? But some people were like, this might be something new because they were, you know. So think about this marketplace of ideas, this compression, right? Of, of, of a place where Paul is speaking. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, like what we're used to of who's this person standing on the corner yelling at everybody. It was a place where you did come and express these ideas, where you did come and, and exchange these things and not in an awkward like person on a, on a street corner holding a sign, but in a place where all ideas were being f- distributed freely and openly. In fact, Athens was so well respected as a free place. Three times it was conquered. Every time it was left to be free after it was conquered because it was so well respected an intellectual concept and idea. So Athens was the place for it to do that. So when they bring him the Areopagus, what does he say? Paul wisely begins to connect to their philosophers and knowledge. He starts saying to them, Paul in the midst, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you're religious, for I passed along and observed your uh, objects of worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What Paul begins to do incredibly is to take in, he doesn't just walk in and just start yelling. He takes time to connect, to build bridges to what is the way that they think to ask the questions of what do they really value? And he not only takes that in, he begins to speak back of the poets and philosophers that he began to read and to speak back to them. I read of these things to an unknown God. He begins to connect to the, to the Epicureans. The Epicureans believe that God was too distant, that, that God's, a God or little g gods had no time to invest in anything. To, so God was really kind of unknown. There was no very little we needed to know about him because he didn't invest in human affairs. And Stoicism was all about harmony. The Stoics, you know, you hear about Stoics being just kind of like cold. Well, one reason they were is like they wanted everything to be in harmony, everything perfect. Uh, divinity didn't really matter for them. Because if you could get everything in order and have your life in harmony, then you didn't need a belief in God to take care of things. Sounds familiar, huh? (laughs) Paul is interacting with their philosophies. So what Paul does is beautiful. He begins to look into their virtue, their order, their morality, what they pursue, and say, without God, do you say to an unknown God, but God has made the world and everything in it. There's a God who's connected to us. R.C. Sproul said this. He's a famous theologian that wrote this about this. I love what he said. He said, years ago, why is there a contradiction? If, if the world is meaningless or unknown, then why pour out your life for social justice, causes, rallies? They know, people know they're meant to have meaning. And there's a structure in it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, why get mad at somebody who cuts cuts you off in line? 
Why do we have a sense of provoked justice? Something in us that thinks there needs to be order if, if everything is to be without. There's something there that we're supposed to know. There's a standard of morality, but to do that without knowing God can be a contradiction. And here's the other th- side of that. To think knowing God is simply being moral also is missing it too. And I think for many people who are religious and come in and maybe think Christianity is like that, if I have more of my life in order or if I find myself getting nicer, then I'm having more of a, I'm becoming more religious or more of a Christian. But that's not what God is. God is not morals. God is not nicer. God is a relationship who comes in and he says here in verse 24, and I love how he says it. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, verse 24, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Notice what he says. He says, God is, if you make a temple, and and let's just take this for instance, this building, it's beautiful. I'm so thankful that we get to meet here. But somebody made this building. And for many of you, when you come through these doors, you may feel like, now there's a reason for this, and it's not a bad reason, but you may think because we're in a church, I have to act in a certain way differently than when I leave here. It's the same reason I find when I sit on an airplane and someone finds out I'm a pastor, they start acting very different. Because you think for a moment, you know, that's where this is. But what are we doing when we do that? We're actually limiting God. Because what Paul is saying is genius. He says, if you make the house for God, and that's only where he lives, who's in charge? Your hands. You. If you put God where you want him, you got him where you want him all the time. Maybe he's not out there. Maybe he's not here. Maybe he doesn't hear me say these things or see these things or do these things when I'm not in this building or near a pastor or near somebody that's, or something that's very uh, connected to Christianity. See what he's doing? He says, no, God is not like that. God is near. He is with you. He's not limited to that. He's also not served by human hands. It says in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Here's what's fascinating. The gods, lower G gods, always needed something. They needed the humans to give them validation. And isn't that what idols do? Notice when he walks through the streets, he recognizes, in fact, Athens was this way. It was littered with idols. Now, not just wooden things, but, but idolatry of all sorts around. Now, we may not have statues or figurines necessarily of things around us, but we have those things. And what we, we typically do when we go back to something that we think we need, and that really is an idol, it's something that says, you have to have me. What are those things that say you have to have me in order to have a good relationship? Now, sometimes those things can be good. Sometimes they can be good things that we idolize, that draw us out, that we think we have to have. But they become idols. We take the good things in life, be it work, marriage, or, or, or sex, or money, or power, whatever it is, and we can actually put into that, make it an ultimate thing. And what this is saying to us is that God doesn't need us. 
in a good way. God doesn't need us the way those idols do, but here's the, here's the kicker. God serves us. God doesn't need us in the way that we think he needs us, but yet he comes and he serves us. He comes to us. That we, we, and we don't serve him out of guilt or trying to warrant him. But because God doesn't need us in that way, he doesn't need those things that he's not needy in that way. He's loving and serves us. This is why Jesus, and think that he connects it to Jesus in the resurrection, because he, what he does is he connects it to the one who would come in bodily form, who needs, just like we do, he would connect to our needs and yet serve everyone around him. And it's also not, finally, in verse 29, <clears throat> he says, not an imagined imagination, but being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. You know what he does? He actually quotes their own poets by saying, in him we live and move and have our being. You know where that quote comes from? It comes from a quote that they talked about Zeus. And Paul does a genius move by saying, you know, you may have this understanding of someone knowing that you're created, but let me tell you, the creator is not unknown. He is known. He makes himself known. We are, yes, all human. We share that connection. He connects the image of God to the dignity of them. He doesn't come down and rail them. He says, you have dignity. You're meant to know and be known. Not just to know, but be known. You see the difference? If, as, a, as a friend of mine once said, if, if life was just about data, if you could just get enough data to do it, we'd all be millionaires and have flat abs. Like it, life isn't just data. And Christianity isn't just another data dump or to reformat that. It's actually to give you a whole new operating system. This is why they were so thrown off by it. When they heard it, they thought, what is this babbler saying? It sounds crazy that God would just not only give us something to know, but to, for us to be known, to come to us, that we're in dignity and care. Because it's not only just the fact that they were knowledge, but the fact that they didn't understand that they were loved. See, Paul addresses what they worship. So when Paul walks around, notice in verse 16, the very beginning, his, Paul's waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. In fact, Athens was so full of idols, it was considered submerged in idols. One uh, commentator said, you could find uh, you could like throw a stone and hit as many idols as you could a person. It was just everywhere. It was like almost the whole place was just submerged within it. And so he recognizes that. And he says, I, I perceive that you're religious. And, and, and he begins to unpack that he's provoked by them, not just Provoked is a word that we think is highly negative, but actually that word provoked is one that is used of God in the Old Testament, 
when he sees his people dabbling in idolatry. It's the same word. And it's not just one of anger or frustration. It means that Paul is saying he has a love for them. He has a jealousy for them. It means they're meant to be known. It wasn't just a place of culture or beauty or architecture that took him. It was seeing where their hearts were. He appeals to them out of their religiosity. And he's saying, again, it's not your lack of data. It's the fact that you need to know that you're loved, that the creator actually has come for you. It's religion is this, and you know that you're still possibly living in religion if Christianity to you is, is simply something that it just continues to support your life without totally overhauling it. If you find that, that God continues to be someone that you just get good data from, or that you're able to kind of shift some things around and it's not overhauling your whole self and your whole life and the way that you see things, then you know that you may still have a religion rather than just a relationship with him, which is what God is saying. This is where Paul is going. He's saying he first works through the mind to say, this is what you know, but here's the one that also knows you and loves you. He connects to the whole self. He goes to what they love. Isn't that what worship is? If the place is filled with idols, let's, let's just step back for a moment. <laughs> I remember when I was uh, a kid and I woke up on Christmas morning and really early, still dark outside. And I thought, man, I'm going to go check and see if Santa's come. So I go out. And I look at, you know, where the tree is, and there it is. This just all the great stuff. And back then, I was like, G.I. Joe's, I mean, the things that I want. I was like, this is amazing. So instead of turning around and going back, it's like, what do you do? Oh, I started taking armfuls and going back and dumping them in my bed. So I <laughs> kept taking armfuls. And, and then I just started pulling them up and just covering myself, smothering myself, literally. So imagine my parents wake up, they come out, their, their room is in another side, so they have to walk through, and they walk out, they're like, oh, there's nothing there. <laughs> like, see, what happened? They come to my room, and there I am, blanket of toys. Like, they can hardly make me out for what is on me. And it's just covering, like, I have these G.I. Joe's just smashed to my face. And I'm the happiest person ever. It's the greatest thing, but that is exactly what it is. See, worship isn't just what you surround yourself with. What, what was I doing with covering myself? I was really showing you the deepest joy of my, my heart at the moment. That's what worship is. They weren't just surrounded with idols. It was probably so much so that it, that it inundated them but it also showed what they really loved. That's actually what the word worship means. Worship, actually, if you, when you break it down, it means worth-ship. It's what you give your greatest worth to. See, and that's what most think religion is. It's a behavior towards what you give worth to. But Christianity flips that. 
It says, God isn't God because he needs your worship. You worship him as what Paul is getting to them, is because he's God. He is the creator. His hands have made these things. And we are built for something more. Many theologians over the years have said, our hearts are like idol factories. Because we long to worship something, we will make anything something worth worship. That we just look at something that, that's the most desirous in our life and we will smother ourselves in it and give us that joy. I just saw, even this week, I mean, I'm sure all of you have heard Tom Brady is coming back to play for the Bucks. Uh, Tom Brady, great, you know, he's considered the greatest quarterback of all time in the NFL. He's come, some of you are like, some of you are like, yeah, you know. There was an Instagram post that I, my wife showed me um, of a dad reading his I'm coming out of retirement. He was in retirement for like two months, okay? He was like, I'm retiring, and then he's like coming back. There was a dad reading his comeback speech of like, I love, and his voice, he was like, I'm coming back. And he like read his speech and exploded with joy because Tom Brady's coming back to, I guess, his favorite team, or he loves Tom Brady, I don't even know. But that is what worship does. What really does that gets to your core to where it just launches you out. It may not be, you may surround yourself with a lot of things, but what's the thing that really gets to the core of you? Because what you love and what you worship goes hand in hand and you were made for it. You are a worshiper. Even if you're here and you'd say, I don't know if I'm even a Christian, I would submit to you as Paul is to the Athenians that we surround ourselves with what we worship. And if we continue to do that in a way of the things that are of creation and not the creator, we will find ourselves disappointed every time. Because only one lasts. And not to mention the things that we surround ourselves with can't hold it. They're not meant to. We can't enjoy them to the fullest. So I want to ask you this. Even if you're a follower and you've been a follower of, of Jesus or you say you're a Christian and you have been since birth, does your relationship with God cause you to get up on your toes? Does it strike at the heart of you in the deepest places that make you not just like an information dump. But does it get to the core of you that you are known more by him than anything else that you could ever imagine? And here's what's incredible what Paul does at the end. And it actually throws all the Athenians for a loop. And it mentions it a couple times. <clears throat> at the very end, he starts talking about the resurrection. He says this in verse 31, because he had fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. The resurrection. Do you know for a Greek person, the resurrection was ridiculous. In fact, that's what they were trying to run from. They thought, resurrection, I, I don't want this body. 
they were actually thinking that this was just a shell. Any way I can get, escape from that, why would I want a resurrected this? But here's the thing about the resurrection. No matter what the philosopher, no matter what the thinker, no matter what the professor, there is one thing we are trying to get past and one trying, question we're trying to answer. What is the meaning of life? And what is the thing that keeps making us ask that question? Death. Death is always making us ask what is the meaning of life? And if there is a God who doesn't just come to live in this life to show us meaning, but then to address death and come up from it, it goes past the Epicureans to say there's a God who's of the greatest divinity that is involved in every part of your life. It goes past the Stoics who say, just live in harmony. There's no need for a God if you can just get everything in order because none of us can because we're all going in the same place until a God who clothes himself in flesh, made himself known, gives himself not in a, any other way other than to say, this is his body and blood for you. And yet he is a living God. He's made himself known. He's living. And he is your God. Guess what? It was enough because we can't get on our toes. Guess who did? God sent Jesus to show us that he gets up on his toes and rejoices in enjoyment over you. That's what you taste at this table, a celebration of his love over you. And if you're here today and maybe you're kind of trying to piece together what Christianity is still. You're trying to make sense of who Jesus is. I'd encourage you, don't, don't just take it to the table just because everybody else is. Uh, just like the Athenians, take it in with integrity. Uh, make sense of it. Talk about it. I remember I was talking to a guy who was an engineer one time, and I would talk to him about the gospel, and he would say, he'd just stare off like this. And I was like, what's he looking at? And then he'd come back and go, okay, okay, got it. What was he? he was thinking through it. After every sentence, he would stop and he'd let his mind try and wrap around some part of it before he said, I'm going to become a Christian. Make sense of it. Let your mind come to it. The Lord wants all of you. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.